Welcome everyone to another action-packed, excited episode of The Art of Ministry. And today we have a look at the question, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Ben Morton, what do they have in common? They are all excellent authors and we can learn a lot from them about the Christian fantasy genre and also about publishing, about books, about writing, about the power of the written word and uh, looking at God's word as well through that. So before we begin our topic of the day, in which I'm going to be asking Lockie to take more of of a lead this time because he's more an expert in this field, I am (laughs) going to talk about Morton's English Fictionary. Now, just so they know what they're getting into, do you want to tell the listeners exactly what the the fictionary is? (laughs) Indeed. So uh, Morton's English Fictionary is a book of words that are not widely known. And uh, they are quite special words. They they are words that uh, you will not hear in conversation. They are new words for you to discover. And uh, they all have meanings. Ben, just for fun, we're going to do a quiz. So, Ben, I'm going to have a... We'll insert cheering into this. So every time you get an answer right, whatever, like you won't hear them now, but there's a huge crowd here. I've just told them to be quiet, but you'll hear them yeah. later. So it'll 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 work yeah. out. So I'm going to basically say what these words are. I'm going to see if Ben can remember what they are uh, from the description. <laughs> so it'll be a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. And I should point out, if someone asked me to do this with my own book, I would not do very well. But I actually think Ben's going to do pretty well. So <laughs> let's Pretty see how we go. We'll have to edit this out if it goes badly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. We'll, still, we'll, you... keep, we'll keep the crowd noises anyway. So this, this whole thing actually started, I, I should probably say, because it'll help. Um, this thing started when a friend of mine wrote on her Facebook feed, I really shouldn't have quite so much alcohol in the future. But she wrote yeah. alcohol with an E on the end. Oh. And so I'm thinking, what is an alcohol? And so then I needed to make a definition for that. Yeah, yes. I thought up was that it is the empty chasm into which you throw all the good things in your life when you have a serious drinking problem. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! And then brilliant. once I did that, I opened a mechanism in my brain that I mm. could not shut again. Yeah. yeah. But then in the years that followed, I started a Twitter feed, which I no longer follow anymore because I hate Twitter. But um, <laughs> I was just whenever I saw a misspelled word, which is not hard to find in yeah. our world. I immediately started thinking of all the permutations of what else could be in that word. Yeah. Um, and that gave me a lot of ammunition. And then I eventually got to the point where the only way I'm going to get this out of my head is put it in a book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're, they're all words that you see them and you don't know what they mean initially, but when you see the definition, you go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is my hope. And my, my, my ultimate hope is that some of them will make their way into actual usage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many of them are eligible for that because they're not particularly useful. When you oh, see them turn up, I love sure you know, you've made it. <laughs> That's it. Excellent. Uh, yeah. What an amazing genesis, though. Like sometimes that's the thing. Like sometimes it's like an accident. It's like someone mm. says something, like you're not looking for it. Like some of the best creative ideas I've ever had, like it's almost to hit to the hit to your kind of um, confidence in a way, but some of them are accidents and you go, Oh, that's brilliant, but I didn't even try to do that. That's really, really good. And it's amazing <laughs> how that could happen. Yeah. There's a one that um Terry Pratchett did many years ago, which I always thought was hilarious. He wrote Deja Fu. Yeah. yeah. The feeling of being kicked in the head before. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. 
And now, we introduce the English Fictionary Quiz. All right, well, you can choose uh, a category in the quiz. So, vegetable or animal? Vegetable. Excellent. I'll give you a bit of a clue for this first one. It's a bit tricky. Uh, it has a legal connotation. Avocado. What does that word mean? Avocado. That would have to be the vegetable that stands up for you in court? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get a big cheer for that one. Well done. All right, yeah. Um, we'll, have a, we'll have animal come okay. out at some point, but uh, you can choose, uh, because you didn't choose animal, you can choose animal or environment. <laughs> well, well, let's have the animal one. I'm curious now. All right. Je ne sais quack. The, the, I don't know what duck it is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I'll give you that one. It's an uncertain kind of duck. Yes. That's right. <laughs> A pleasant duck, yes. Yeah, we'll give you that one. That's, that's very yeah. good. Uh, you can choose environment, or we can go for, uh, for a bonus point, you can go for objects. Ooh, object, okay. I like bonus points. <laughs> okay. Umbrella. Umbrella. Uh, is it umbra? Yes, umber. Umbrella. Okay. Um, because umber would be a shade of brown. Uh huh. Uh, I would imagine. Um, so I, it would probably be something that protects you from a shade of brown. Oh. Whereas umbra, if it was umbra, it would be the space between where the where it is protected and not protected. It's sort of halfway in between. Yes, I, I, I'm going to say that's that's just past the line. A natural oh, okay. brown coloured rain shield. Okay, <laughs> but you had all the elements there, so I'm yes, yes. that one. See, now, now I'm wondering whether it's actually something that you could use when when stuff hits the fan. <laughs> yeah, that's right, <laughs> exactly. And uh, yesterday, yesterday, um, that which is bigger in the past. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Well done. <laughs> In hindsight, in hindsight, everything seems bigger and fluffier than it really was. Yes. See, that's better. The one that I thought about all the time was much better. Yeah, yeah. Well done. I love those moments where you're like, oh, I came up with something good and I don't remember it. Uh, and Lucky, um, to give you a go, see if you can guess this one. Ozone layer. What is the ozone layer? Ozone layer. Um... Oh, the clue is in the title. Oh, I'm wondering if it's when the smog is so thick that it feels like ooze. Or so. <laughs> That's pretty good. We'll I take like it. Part, parts of the Earth's atmosphere that absorbs ultraviolet radiation and deposits slimy residue on kitchen appliances. Nice. <laughs> yeah, particularly. I, I like that yeah. one. I don't know whether this one. Actually, I don't know whether this one actually got into the book or not, but I had one which was. Uh, Frettuccini. Oh, it's the pasta of regret. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll have to look it up. Well, <laughs> while Lucky asked the first question, uh, I'm going to look sure. this up. Sure. Well, yeah, Ben, you are quite a um, complex beast in many ways. You are a published <laughs> author. Um, yes. You are an editor. You are a publisher many times over, which we'll get into. Um, 
Among your various projects, uh, you work quite extensively with um, Stone Table Books, uh, which I, I'm, I'm hoping we can get up on the uh, we can get like a web link on the uh, the Facebooks and the socials. Because um, yep. I definitely think that'd be worth plugging. But um, it's it's a publishing house that I have heard described as um, not a Christian fantasy publishing house but a fantasy publishing house that publishes a lot of Christians. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is, is that right? And the second thing is, for, for people who might be, be a bit confused by that, what's the difference? Okay. Um, so Stone Table Books were started by Mark Worthing, who you, lucky you know him. I don't know whether John has met him. Mm, but have, um, yeah. <clears throat> he was my teacher in uh, Tabor, and um, we had a whole bunch of students who were doing their masters in creative writing and he just wanted to start a publishing label so that he could publish the books of all these great students. He had this mm. huge catalogue of these fantasy and sci-fi novels that were coming up. And he said, this is brilliant work. And the way publishing is, is at the moment, they may never see the light of day. Mm. So mm. That, that would be tragic. So he created a publishing label essentially for that purpose. Mm. Um, and so myself and a few other people who were in the class um he actually approached us and said can you bring your books and we will publish them um and because i had already been working with him doing some other small publication stuff with his previous label which was called pantanus press which never really went very far um i kind of came on board to help him with publishing mm. um and so yeah we we didn't set out to be a christian publisher um we essentially set out to just publish this great work that we were aware of but because we were at Tabor most of the students are Christians and most of them are writing stuff which is at least in some part Christian themed or something adjacent um and so by default ended up that's what we were doing um but yeah so the difference I think really is that if you are a publisher uh, a Christian publisher I suppose if you wanted to actually make that your label it would suggest that what you are publishing is work that is for Christians or about Christianity um, and very specifically that. Uh, whereas we really were a sci-fi fantasy or what I would say speculative fiction, although that's a title most, most people don't recognise straight away, so you have to qualify that by mm. saying science fiction and fantasy. Um, mm. So speculative fiction titles, um, which just happen for the most part to be written by Christian authors. Uh, we mm. are 100% Christian authors. There are a few, few of the authors who are not. Uh, we've never made a point of advertising ourselves as Christians, um, but it just happens most of our authors come from a particular pool um, and have these ideas. We would probably, there would probably be one, one other difference would be that there are some things that would be offensive to Christians that we would probably not publish. Um, mm. So someone who was specifically going out of their way to target Christian faith and to be very defamatory um, I mean, actual uh, legitimate commentary and criticism would be fine, but I think if something is obviously targeted um, to, um, you know, to be intentionally negative about Christian faith, we may choose not to publish that at all. Uh, so yeah. I think of maybe um, uh, we we may have had a little bit of hassle with possibly Philip Pullman because he was very particular about attacking Christian faith. Uh, yeah. or, um, I haven't had a chance to read all of his books yet, but I'm mo I've mostly heard things about what's in them, so I have to get to them myself. They're on my shelf back there, <laughs> along with a million other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, 
so that I suppose that's really the difference is that we are sci-fi and fantasy publishers who happen to largely publish Christian work. Mm. Um, and we don't have a problem with stuff which is fairly overt, but we don't specifically look for it. And in mm. fact, a lot of time the stuff which is particularly overt in its Christianity is also not very good. Um, mm. So the subtlety is oftentimes better. Um, so yeah, we don't we haven't balked at anything that for being too Christian, or but we have had a few things that have come through. We said yeah, maybe we need to work on this a little bit and kind of tighten it up. Um, yeah, yeah. So so in a way, you have one one thing that sets you apart is you you're probably a space that would accept more Christian stuff in terms of you'd be you would publish stuff that has a, a sort of a Christian message in there, but. Yes. It sounds like the quality is really the sort of defining thing for you. That you—that's where you're you're making the call on to whether whether to publish or not. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, we really want the point of it. Really, is to publish good quality fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and um, given the the history of fantasy and sci-fi as genres, um, there's a lot of scope for Christian faith to be explored in fantasy. So we kind of want to do that. That would be really good to see that happen well. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it is one of the problems that we have a lot of times with arts in Christian faith, and you guys probably have talked about this before. Um, is that oftentimes, um, people have they fall into this thing of um, they think they can do it and they have a go, and then everybody at their church says, Oh, it's really good, and they're being kind and polite, and it's actually not that good. Yeah, um, but nobody will tell them because we're all trying to be nice and kind and friendly and helpful and supportive. Uh, which are all good things, but they also ideally need to be true. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we miss that. Um, and there's that thing of the Dunning-Kruger effect that happens where you don't actually know what good writing looks like if, unless you're actually a good writer. Um, yeah. so people can say, oh, yeah, I wrote this novel, and we look at it and go, oh, my gosh, what what is that? Yeah. <laughs> and But my granny says it's really good, um, you know, the the problem is you don't necessarily know what you don't know. Um, yeah, so we have had a few things that have come across the table and kind of said, you know, that's not actually up to snuff yet. Um, we ideally would like to see people who've got a little bit of kind of training behind them or something so, so we can see this is actually quality writing. Um, we have had a few books where we've spent a lot of time editing them, them to bring them up to standard. Um, yeah. But in a lot of cases, that was because we could see in the book that this was something that was really good well thought through, really interesting, but just not that well written yet. And yeah. that kind of editing we can do. Uh, you can't fix if the premise is no good. Uh, like yeah. The basic characters are not working if the story itself makes no sense. That's that, You can't fix that. Um, but if you've got a really good gem of an idea, but your writing is a little bit scratchy, we, we might actually help out with that. I mean, Probably less so nowadays because we started out with people that we knew. Um, yeah. And so we could say to them, listen, we're going to spend some time working on this and we'll help you out with it because we want to see this book happen. Whereas nowadays, most of the people that are coming to us are people we've never heard of before and we've got no particular vested interest in seeing their book come out. Um, so, yeah, um, that's pretty much where we're at at the moment. Yeah. By by virtue of being more successful, you're getting a bit stricter on who you're accepting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, maybe so. I mean, it was more about um, we 
we started with the intention of helping specific people getting their book done and because it was already good. Um, and so we didn't mind putting a bunch of unpaid hours into making it better because yeah. it was ultimately going to be better quality across the board. Yeah. Uh, and also those people were willing to let us do that. Uh, some writers can be very precious about their work. And when you start saying, listen, this, this is not working, yeah. they can get very antsy. We've had a couple of folks where we've suggested to them, you might need to do some work in this area. And they've kind of gone, no, no, you can't change that. That's my, that's my, my baby. It's my creature that I made. Yeah. And we've got to, you know, we, we can't work with that. You know, there's no, there's no room. Um, having said that, we did have, um, uh, you guys have heard about Mark Worthing wrote a book called um, uh, Chelsea McAllister and the Bubblegum Effect. Have you heard of it? I've heard the name. Yep. Oh, yeah, I've heard the name. One of our one of our more recent titles. We've actually we've got it in our collection. Um, he wrote this book uh, because he was frustrated that his daughter couldn't find any good adventure stories for girls. All the all the fantasy sci-fi adventure stories are all boys. Yeah. Uh, girls books are all you know babysitters and ponies and things like that and she's like yeah. no i want an adventure write me an adventure story so he wrote a story he, he her name was chelsea so he called his character chelsea um and he wrote this really great story about a girl who she's wants to one-up one of her classmates who she doesn't like with her science experiments so she borrows her dad's time machine and she goes back in time and takes notes and messes up everything she leaves, leaves mm -hmm. her bubble gum in the prehistoric era and leaves her DNA in the world um, and everything goes to pot. Mm -hmm. And it's a fantastic story and it's about this girl who actually loves math and science and she's really fascinated and she learns really interesting things. Um, and he took it to one of the other publishers. who He didn't tell me who that was, so I can't shame them. But um, mm -hmm. he took it to a publisher and said, here's my kid's book. I think it'll be fantastic. And they said, oh, it's really good. Can you turn her into a boy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because that was the point of this yeah, whole story. Missed the purpose here. <laughs> um, and sometimes, as a publisher, you can miss the purpose, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, in this case, he brought it. He he showed it to a bunch of us, and we said, "You have got to publish it. We we should do it." And eventually, we talked him into it, and it is really, really good, magnificent. Story. Yeah. Seem it seems to be one of those things that. I mean, the, the challenge for an author of, of getting that first book published is always a tricky one. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be a very important principle of um, go into it with humility, uh -huh. but, know, but know the one or two things that you're not going to bend on. You know? <laughs> for sure, yeah. I mean, and also there's the problem with sort of the, the modern publishing situation is that in the past it's always been that the big publishers, like your big names, have been the gatekeepers. And what they would do is they would only publish the things that were really, really good. Uh, and so you would bring your your manuscript to them and you'd say, here's my manuscript, this is what I'm writing, and they would tell you whether or not it was good. Yeah. Um, and they would say, yes, we can work with this, no, we can't. And then they would send it back to you or they would send it back to you with notes or whatever. Um, yeah. And then you would have a benchmark then. But the thing is that nowadays the big publishers, what they are not, they're not interested in whether or not it's good. They're interested in whether or not they can sell it. Yeah, um, because they yeah. don't care if it's not good, but they can sell it. That's enough. Um, and if it is good, but they don't think they can sell it, then that's not enough. So yeah. you haven't got a benchmark of whether or not your work is worthy of anything. You've only got a benchmark of whether or not the big publisher thinks they can sell that work. Um, 
But in some cases, those places won't even give you feedback anymore. They'll just say, yeah. you know, we, we we get lots of manuscripts, so if you don't hear back from us, then sorry. Yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have a thing called a slush pile, which most, most authors have heard about. Slush pile yeah. where they put all the manuscripts that they didn't ask for, and they stack them up somewhere, and then when someone's got time, they'll go and have a look at those, and they'll yeah. pick one out and read it. Like on, you know, Friday afternoon when they've done all their work, they'll go and have a look yeah. at one of the books in there. And if it happens to be amazing then they will take it. And if it's not, they just throw it back. Yeah. Um, or put it in the envelope to return to sender or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's a, it's a difficult world to break into. And even people who have been published before, it's not just your first book, people who have been published lots of times. Uh, Roseanne Hawke um, is multi-published author. She's written on the 30-some-odd kids' books that have all been published and she's done really well. But she still says sometimes I'll put a book in somewhere and they won't take it. They're not interested yeah. in it. They're not sure that it will sell. Yeah. There's no guarantee. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, moving moving one step aside from the sort of publishing side of things just for a minute, um, oh. Ben, you are um, an author as well, as we've seen with the fictionary. Um yeah. But, but you you do more than just sort of uh, you know non that's almost a non fiction thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's fictional, but but um, it's, it's really non fiction. Um, but you actually do uh, fiction proper as well. Yes. Um, and have a number of books published. Um, so you are a fantasy author as well as a publisher. Yes. Um, now we've talked about at Stone Table, you've got a sort of a range that you've you've got people who sort of will have Christian beliefs, but it doesn't it doesn't really necessarily appear much in their books except in a very um subtle way and you get people who are much more blatant um mm. where do you sit how what sort of a role for you does faith play in your own writings it's i think it's tricky to answer that because i thought i was being really subtle and then someone told me i was being really obvious so it's hard to know for sure <laughs> um one of the tricky things with an author is actually with authors you don't you don't know for sure how well people are getting what you're saying uh, or not mm-hmm. um so i've i published a novel it was my master's thesis um was called playing god and there were some specific ideas that i had it started as a theological concept um so if you remember back in the day there was a a song what if god was one of us Um, when that was on the radio this gives you an idea of roughly how long i've been uh, working on this thing um that i picked that up along the way so i'd already started something and that was what inspired me that there was another song by a fellow whose name i can't call to mind right now but he was a christian singer and he sang, sang a song if i were you um, and it was basically saying, if I was God, this is how I would do things. Um, and saying, you know, it would be a pretty scary place if I was God. And I mm. caught on that that idea. And I was reading a series of books from the video game uh, Mist. Any of you guys have heard yeah. of that? So I was I played that the game and I read the the novels that were attached to it. And I was fascinated by the idea of people creating their own worlds and actually being God themselves. And mm. me, the idea of the the reason why a person can't be god is because we are morally unable to live up to the standard that is required to actually be god uh, mm. we not be able to do that job so i created a a world which was basically like a you know like the matrix it's a it's a totally simulated environment but it's set sort of lord of the rings fantasy style 
but very, very eclectic on purpose because the guy who created it was a 16-year-old kid from our world who's just playing video games. And he's mm. he has enough money to hire someone who's a professional to build this thing for him and just said, yeah, I want wizards and I want dragons and I want this and I want this. And she just <laughs> put all that stuff in there. Um, yeah. And then he's just mucking around and playing God in this world. Um, but um, I sort of, I wanted him to be ultimately the worst example of what I was thinking of, of why we can't be God. He doesn't yeah. care about his people. He doesn't, he's not interested in their affairs. He doesn't have time to listen to them. You know, he doesn't mm. want to hear prayers. So he sets up an answering machine to answer the prayers. <laughs> then the answering machine is answering, yes, I am God. I will help you with this. But then it's because it now believes that it is God, it starts wondering who's sitting in my chair. And so it ousts him from his position as God and deposits him in the world. Um, <laughs> and now he's stuck there. And so what I've done is actually a, a reversed incarnation. It wasn't Jesus come down to be one of us. It was God cast down by his own creation and put in our world. And now he's stuck. Um, mm. But there was a purposeful parallel that happened. Um, but you know, and, and like I said, I thought uh, that I was being clever and subtle, but I'm not. Don't know that I was. Um, I think that people kind of picked it up pretty quickly. But um, <laughs> the name might have given people a hint. It may have, <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, I mean, for me, it was exploring that idea. Um, and you know, so this this character who is God in this world, his name is Jeff. Uh, because I couldn't think of a more ordinary name than just a guy named Jeff. Um, and he actually meets up with a couple of students who are basically like Bible college students. But in that world, Bible college student and trainee wizard are essentially the same thing. Mm. Uh, and these guys, he's traveling with them because they're going to try and find out what's wrong with God. They don't know he's right there. Um, and it's a good thing they don't know because they'd probably punch him in the mouth and he would deserve yeah. it. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of theology in my writing and it was very central to everything that I did. And the kind of, in my thinking, I was just exploring this idea so that I could get it out of my head and into paper uh, where not only I could see it finished, but also other people could look at it and in, engage with that thought as well. Um and as far as books, that is that is my book. Um, I my other writing, I did some some short stories and poetry, which I was writing at, at uni while I was learning about all this stuff. Uh, so I did a little anthology that went along that came after. But as far as published work, those those two books and my fictionary are my entire published work. Mm. Um, so I've, mm. I've published a lot of lot more of other people's books than I have of my own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to quickly say it's it's an interesting one because that does have obviously a strong sort of Christian themes in it, but it's not necessarily the sort of Christian themes that everyone would find comfortable because you mm. know someone who might kind of say, "Oh, I like I like the you know the Left for Dead series or something because it just plays out what I you know I, one take on a Bible passage," mm. whereas that that idea of this is exploring Christian ideas, but this is a a world which has its own sort of God figure in it and is quite apart from the you know theology we know that there's a lot of people who would find that quite unsettling as an idea. So Yeah. Um and to those people I say read the end of the book because God comes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
one of the things I love with the subtlety of Tolkien's work. And I, you know, I'll be curious if anyone that is listening to this that isn't particularly Christian themselves or hasn't thought about um, Tolkien stuff as particularly, you know, Christian influence. One of the things I love is when you look into it, you, you said, you know, swords aren't necessarily always the problem, aren't always the answer. And in Tolkien, definitely the fact is for every good sword, there's a hundred bad swords. Yes. So the answer is never let's fight our way to victory. But there's this thing of, well, how, how do they fight the evil? Mm. And the answer is they fight by taking the ring with them. And the way, the key thing about the, the ring is it is fundamentally temptation. Yeah. Because every time there's the temptation. So the way you fight this evil is every day someone's got to get up and res- resist this temptation. Someone has to yeah, carry it. Yeah. That ongoing battle. But there's also grace built into it because as one of them starts to slowly decay and break down and lose it, you get this other figure who's there to help mm. them and encourage them along the way. And, yes, at the very last moment when the, the person fails at the critical moment, there is this plan that none of them could have seen that is, yeah, has spawned from an act of mercy in the, in a previous book um, that, that means everything comes good even despite their failure, you know. Yeah. And what Tolkien did was he put the main, the, the central characters are hobbits. They have no major powers. They have no amazing <laughs> abilities. They're just small people who would much rather be having tea time at home. Yeah, they're um, definitely the everyman. Know. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they have swords, but they don't really know how to use them. And they, <laughs> they get them taken away or, you know, they get beaten down so much um, that it's, this is, this fight is never going to be won by a fighting back with a sword. And yeah. the problem that they constantly have with Superman in cartoons is that he is so extraordinarily powerful that everybody has to exploit a weakness. They can't fight him on his strength because there is nowhere to go. There's, there is no yeah. one who can stand toe-to-toe, or very rare, very rare you can find a character who can stand toe-to-toe with Superman and fight him on his own ground. So everybody has to threaten somebody he loves, take away his power, or, you know, um, something to that effect, so that he can't do what he would otherwise do. Yeah, uh, and so it's one of those things with um, a lot of writers want to write a character who is bulletproof, um, and they get everything right and they know all the answers, so they become a Superman. Uh, the, yeah. the the word Mary Sue's been bandied around a lot, and this is a it's it's a symptom of that sort of thinking is that. I, I create my character and I like my character and I want them to get it right and I want them to do this and I want them to do this. And it's not really fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you have a character who is the underdog who actually can't do those things and has to figure out a different way, um, then suddenly now there's more tension. Uh, so that's why I started my story with a kid who's a student and doesn't really understand magic yet. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Tolkien does that on both ends of things, something I find fascinating with him in a lot of fantasy stories particularly, but sort of adventure stories. There's this idea of you keep meeting bigger and bigger things. As you yeah. go along, you sort of you level up, you know, you face mm-hmm. tougher and tougher enemies until you're eventually fighting the great. Whereas in Tolkien, the first thing you meet is one of the most terrifying monsters in the story. And... Mm-hmm. How so nine ring rates, and you've got four yes, hobbits. Then exactly. that's cool. And if you knew what, if you knew at the end of the book what you do about that horseman that shows up in in Hobbiton, you would be terrified when they knock on the door. You know, um, 
So there's this sense of he pits these nobody everymen against this thing that you later find out is breathtakingly terrifying. This is the witch mm. king of Agma, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's interesting, though, if you look at um, even scripture, if you look at what, how does God do these things, he does the same thing. Uh, you know, Gideon and his men, he whittles them down. Um, when he's going to choose, you know, the, the king of the world is going to come through who? A teenage girl who doesn't really understand what's going on and is not even married yet. Uh, yeah. You know, he's going to save all these people in Egypt with who? Joseph, who was, you know, nearly killed by his brothers. Probably a bit of a jerk and, like, the only good thing Joseph could do was listen to what God was saying. That was literally his only ability. Um, and he played that one well, but yeah. he, was, he was nobody and he saved everybody. Um, King David know. as well, you know, yeah. like not, not the one who, you know, not the most, you know, mm. th there he was, but what a, what a picture, you know, yeah. ten, tending the, you know, being a shepherd. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. And I, Moses I, and, I mean, Everybody, all the way through the Bible, whenever you go, who is it that God picks and gives the job? It's never the, the biggest guy. In fact, the one with David, King Saul, if you look at where he first comes into the story, he is a head taller than everybody else in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Goliath shows up and says, send me your best fighter, who should have been out in front of the line? Yeah. <laughs> the tallest, strongest guy they had, the most good-looking, the king, he was the guy who was, who was earmarked for that job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he wasn't going to do it. He was cowering in his tent. Mm. And it, I find it fascinating. It's one of the things in the Bible you look through, the heroes God chooses are the worst. They are the mm. literal worst. And I, I feel like so many, so many times it's like God is making a point of showing off by using the worst weapon he can possibly get. Yeah. It's like some bar fight going, I'm going to beat you with this napkin. Yes. <laughs> In fact, there's, there's, I don't know if you guys have seen Chronicles of Riddick, but he does that in that in that movie. Like uh, he he takes uh, like a metal cup and puts it on the table, and like this is what I'm going to use to kill you next. Yeah, <laughs> like everyone's <laughs> laughing and like, what are you going to do with that? And then he uses it, and it's like, oh, okay, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, God does a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to beat you with Peter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the um, yeah, no, the it, that's such an encouragement for us though, because God yeah. uses people who, you know, are not. It's not like the most physically mm. imposing, you know, strongest. You yeah, know. God's going to win yeah. a battle. He's going to use the guy who can't even find his face with both hands. Yeah, yeah. If if ever you've been worried that God can't use you, he's worked with worse than you. <laughs> yeah. So Ben, with the, we talked a little bit about Tolkien and also touched on C.S. Lewis. What what is it that makes these books in particular a widely admired set of volumes in Christian fantasy? We've touched on a few things, but is there is there anything you can pinpoint that you think you know might be what what gives them, I suppose, such uh, um, you know attention in in mm. the in the Christian world? And also, can you see? I suppose a pathway of a book becoming that successful again in, in for a wider audience. Um, I think Tolkien and Lewis, for in, in some cases, a couple of different reasons. In some cases, are the same. 
um, because Tolkien plugged away at his book for like two decades, I think, before yes. he eventually put out like one book. Um, and wow. he rewrote and rewrote and rewrote that book so many times. I mean, on a typewriter, like this wasn't this wasn't cut and paste like MS Word. This was he didn't like something on page ten. He rewrote the first ten pages again yep. and went from there. Um, oh, well, he rewrote from page. Sorry. Using old exam papers, I think there was a paper shortage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he more paper. He mucked around with that for a very long time. But he was an extraordinarily clever fellow. Yeah. Um, but remember, his book actually only existed because he wanted a place to write for his for his languages to exist. Mm. Originally, he was actually making creating languages because he wanted to for fun. Yeah. Because um, yeah. he was that kind of person, and. As he was doing that, the world kind of took shape and he was telling stories to to his kids and The Hobbit came out of him telling this story. Um, I know there's a, there's a classic story where he, talk, he talked about that he was marking papers and he was bored and he turned one of them over and wrote on the, on the back of it in a hole in the ground and lived a hobbit. And then he sort of imagined what a hobbit was like and started creating a story. But that was a kid's story that he was telling to the kids. Yeah, and yeah. It got longer and longer, and he added more to it. Um, and then over time, he realized that this story could actually fit into the other thing that he was working on. Um, so it it was massive and epic before he got to any of that. Yeah, um, I so can see how that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, when when you read it, you have a sense that there is so much more beneath the surface. You can't. You don't just. It's not just what you see, but it's like. Every page is an iceberg, and there's like you know ninety percent of it is actually behind the scenes, and you feel like if you could scratch below the surface, there would be so much more. You know, yeah. some guy shows up on a page, and you think, I reckon that guy actually has a family, and Tolkien knew their names. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah. he knew who their ancestors were. Um, you know, and every place has a reason for being there because he yeah. thought about these things a lot. People can't do that very well anymore. Uh, we don't. We don't have the attention span for it. I think there may be some people. I mean, I'm generalizing, but we don't <laughs> see a lot of that. But also, <laughs> most most people who give writer advice will tell you not to do that because you'll be stuck doing it for the next twenty years, and your book won't get written. Mm. Uh, I know this because my book sat on my shelf for twenty years and didn't get written, um, and I don't have anything like the depth that he has in his uh, in his work. Um, but it still took me 20 years to actually get myself to finish the book. Um, and Lewis, on the other hand, while Tolkien was writing his book, Lewis was knocking out like a book a year, I think. It was crazy. Yeah. One more book, one more book, one more book. Um, and, and some would say you can see that it's not as deep because he hasn't had the time to think about it like that. But Lewis was so steeped in his in, in his faith journey um, and um, really excited about his ideas of, of, of wow. kind of how do I reframe Jesus in a different way for people to, re to understand him in like a different perspective um, because a lot of people don't know what to do with Jesus and this guy yeah. 2,000 years ago and we don't really understand his culture very well unless we bothered to research it which is takes time Um but the idea that we know that he is the son of God and we know that he is the creator of the world and we know th these things about him, 
what if we could imagine what he would be like in a different world? Um, and mm. because fantasy stories have had this long history of having like a fairyland, um, <clears throat> which is it's like our world, but it's just through the veil into something a little bit different, but also a little bit the same, and a place where magic can happen. And so, mm. what if what if there's lots of such places? And what is Jesus like when he goes there? Mm. Maybe when he comes here, we see him as Jesus, and maybe when he goes there, we see him as a lion named Aslan. And yeah. In reality, it's the same person. He just takes the shape that best fits the environment. Mm. Uh, I think he actually even used the example of why a raindrop is round, that it's just the most economical use of the space. Like the geometry of a raindrop is essentially a sphere because that's mm. the, it, say, it saves energy by being that shape. Um, and the idea that in our world, Jesus' shape needed to be a Jewish man 2,000 years ago, and in their world, he needs to be a magic lion. Um, and mm. in some other world, he'll be some other shape again. Um, and um, his idea of in our world, he dies on a cross for us. In their world, he dies on a stone table. Um, but that his impact on the world is the same. Um, mm. He is the Lord of that world, and he goes there and he dies to redeem it for himself. <clears throat> Um, and to rescue all the people who are there from the fate that was coming to them, um, which may or may not have been their own fault, depending on how you read those different stories. Um, um, but you know, he had some fa some fascinating ideas which he played with, um, and he was doing exactly that. When you know, Tolkien essentially wrote that one book over all those years, and Lewis wrote, I think, twenty books in the same twenty years. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing how that happens. Uh, hmm. I don't know if you guys have felt this, but sometimes you'll work on something for, like, for me, you know, in music, there's one particular piece of music I've been working on for about 20 years. It sounds ridiculous, but I've been hmm. just continually layering it, layering it, layering it. You know, it's, hmm. it's become a bit ridiculous, but this year it's starting to get to a point when then suddenly you'll get inspiration for something else. On one night, you'll knock something out that's you'll be like oh i'm really happy with that and it's on par yeah. with that yeah 20 year yeah. thing and you go is that the same or is that a little bit better or is it not um mm. like it kind of like sometimes you get sudden inspiration for something and it's just zoom. and mm. maybe c.s lewis was one of those people who I mean, obviously was a quite a brilliant person but was able to just go i know this knock it out bang 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 but yeah. <laughs> tolkien at the same time like you said the iceberg I was thinking that I had that exact image in my mind as you were talking about it. He's yeah. lived and breathed with those characters for that long. Yeah. And, mm. and you know, as as authors, I know I'm sure you're, you know, you you know about this. Mm. If you put your characters in another book, you would know how they would act. <laughs> and you'd know what they would do in that scenario and that scenario because you know those characters so well now. And mm. I imagine Tolkien, mm. you know, like that iceberg must have been immense because he knew all their backstories. He'd had it in his mind for that long. Yeah. So it's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? Everyone's got a different approach, but uh, it's like <laughs> it's like having them as a family almost. You know who mm. who they are. You know what they would do in that scenario, that scenario. Mm. Yeah. I had a, a character that I created once. He was a detective and he was a jerk. Uh, <laughs> I, I like him. He's he's fun to write for because he talks straight to everybody. He doesn't like doesn't like anybody, but he would talk straight to everybody um and he's he's a bit gruff but he's very straight down the line and i i kind of 
I wrote this one story about him um, was in an anthology. It was called Table Nine because he's, he's going to a wedding. Um, he doesn't want to be at the wedding except that because because the person he actually has had a crush on for a long time is getting married to somebody else, and they've put him at Table Nine. Um, and if you know that the, every wedding has a Table Nine, it's that one where you put all the people who don't fit with the other groups. So have your work friends at one table and you have your other work friends from the other work on the other table and your social friends on this table and whatever. And then there's this one table that you go like, I don't know where to put any of these other people. So I'll just stick them all on this one table. And usually like the, the minister of the, of the wedding is at that table because it's you don't table come anywhere else. Um, you know, he's, he's the, the person you don't actually know and he doesn't know anybody else. So they put him there. Um, and you know, you might have, somebody's uncle who like um just smells like cabbage or something you put him on that table because you don't want to and you know everybody else is going to hate him um <clears throat> and they put they put this guy on that table and he and like the entire thing was just me watching a wedding through his eyes uh, or watching the reception after the wedding through his eyes mm. and i thought this was going to be a really great character i was going to write him in all these other stories and he just would not cooperate with any other efforts that i made i made for him <laughs> I created about five or six different story ideas and he would not in, go into any of them except for one. And it was an activity that one of my writing teachers suggested to me. He said, when you're do, having a struggle like this, just create a normal scene. Um, here's a scene. He's sitting down to eat a bowl of spaghetti. Write that scene. Yeah. Just write that scene and see how he reacts to it. He... It really, he shone in that scene um, because as soon as I started writing, I realized, why is he eating spaghetti? There's no reason for him to be eating spaghetti. That's not what he eats. Uh, he's, a, he's a steak sandwich <laughs> kind of guy. Right? Spaghetti is not really his deal. And I thought, I know why, because little old lady down the road hasn't, has, hasn't got money to pay him for his work and she made him a bowl of spaghetti. Uh. And he... Can't be mean to a little old lady down the road who's trying to pay him in spaghetti. So suddenly this character, who was gruff and mean and horrible to pretty much everybody, suddenly can't be that. Yeah. And he's got to sit there and be nice and eat spaghetti, even though he doesn't want to and doesn't like it. But he's going to. And that's the only scene I could fit him into. <laughs> bizarre. Um but you knew yeah. you knew him well enough to know that that uh, once you'd got into that, yeah, this this could go somewhere now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But things I haven't been able to get him to go anywhere else since then. He's only been in two things, and that one's not been published because it was only a scene. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a he was a fun character to write. Um, mm. The he the the jerk character that I used for Jeff and for this guy, his name was Jack. Um, I, I kind of feel like there's a there's a part of my personality that I need to explore more, which is this guy. Um, mm. I think that's it's a part of my own persona, my under the, the Jungian shadow. I think is is there, and so I'm kind of poking that bear a little bit. Um, You're exploring your jerk side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I think I I think I suppress that um, that part of me too much. I need to mm. understand it. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting. I um with the like the C.S. Lewis stuff because I, we are reading um 
Narnia Chronicles for my little boy at the moment. Okay. Um, and I would I would certainly agree that it does feel a lot less um, comprehensively thought through. I like I love Lewis. But yes, I, I feel like we're reading the silver chair at the moment, and I feel like Marsh Wiggles did not exist before this book started. <laughs> yes, and oh my gosh, Puddle Glum is my favourite character. Yes. I love <laughs> All of the, of, I mean, in fact, I actually did a fan fiction scene of Puddle Glum. I wrote him a scene <laughs> um, as a writing exercise because I just enjoy writing him as a character. Um, mm. Him and Marvin the Paranoid Android are two of my favourites because they. <laughs> They just—they're just so fascinating to see somebody like that. But the thing with Puddle Glum is that even though he seems so totally depressed and miserable about everything, there is some really powerful faith underneath all that. Yeah, he he's got a strong character. I like him. And that was the—the the thing I was thinking is, in some ways, Lewis. You look at that, like, I, I understand Tolkien was always getting annoyed with him for recycling um, Greek mythology into his things and having mm. Bacchus turn up in, at, at parties with um, Aslan and things like that. And, yeah, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. But you, you do get the feeling, really, this story is about the character of Aslan mm. because he's the one that comes out right through it. And there's a couple of times when the when Lucy says, you know, it's not the problem isn't losing Narnia, it's losing you. And it does yeah. sort of highlight that. That that book is about him, you know. <laughs> mm. The mm. funny thing is, I've been reading uh, my kids the uh, Wizard of Oz stories, like the whole book. We got a an on, uh, like an omnibus of all of the Wizard of Oz. I had no idea how many of them there were. There's heaps. Um, <laughs> but Father Christmas shows up in that one too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but not the avocado. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Stephen Ernston, who did the puppeting talk with us, actually, what, mm. he had a great tool that he did with, he uh, when he had a puppet, the puppet would ask all the questions that the audience might ask, you know, yes. why doesn't this person do this? Why doesn't, you know, how is how is this, you know, fair or not fair or whatever, whatever it is? And he'd have the mm. puppet ask the questions that the audience were like, yeah, yeah, mm. you know, yeah. but... But then you know he'd talk God's truth, and they and he would talk all about how you know, and the puppet comes to you know would actually listen to this, and and mm. uh, I really like the idea of not so much a comic foil, but more kind of a an asking questions character that then yeah. you can actually answer all those questions that don't have to remain unanswered. Yeah, or, or not even like he he actually had a um a thing where he'd sometimes use puppets. Uh, and he would have the obvious questions and then have answers, but they would, he would then end on the, the puppet going, but wait a minute, what about? And he'd actually leave them with that question when he finished the session to give, mm. give people a way to go and think about. Mm. It's interesting, the, the, the foil, the reason why Batman has a Robin a lot of the time is because Batman as a character has no reason to explain to the audience why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. But Robin can be dumb and not know what that is. You know, why are you doing that, Batman? And he can tell him. And then the audience yeah. goes, oh, now I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, ben, why does Batman wear black? Why? Batman doesn't like to get shot. Why is Robin multicolored? Because Batman, Batman does not want to get shot. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
I'm going to let yeah. Lockie go to his question before I tell any more terrible jokes. <laughs> I was about to say, before we go too far around, down a rabbit hole, let's let's get back to something a bit more practical. So, yeah, fair enough. Um, ben, one interesting thing about you is that you are your own worst enemy in that um, <laughs> you, are, you are actually your own competition. Um, uh-huh. So I sort of mentioned at the beginning that you are a, a double publisher. Um, yeah. And one of the things is I know you, you have a couple of different hats on and you – um, work as the sort of two IC of a publishing house and then directly compete with yourself. Uh, uh-huh. Do you want to let us, let us know a bit how, how that works? <laughs> okay, so I I learned how to publish books by working with Stone Table. Um, hmm. So just because Mark was wanting to do it and sort of needed some help, and so I figured out things as I went and learned how to do that. Um, and as I was learning that, I realised that there was a lot of people who had books that didn't, know how to publish them didn't know where to go didn't know what to do mm. um i now had the skills to make a book from beginning through to end and publish it at every point all of the steps that were necessary i could technically do um so I thought, well why don't i offer that as a service um and so i created my own publishing label which is what i actually did my fictionary as a test run to see how it worked i wanted to see if i could publish that mm. book and learn how publishing worked and make sure that I knew how to do it on my own book, use myself as a guinea pig, um, so that I could, you know, work all the kinks out. Um, and so I published that one um, and also a couple of other ones shortly after, um, just with the idea that I could do it. Um, and in one sense, yeah, it is, um, there is a little bit of overlap, um, but what I've kind of gone for is stone table is more like a traditional publisher where people send us a manuscript and then we decide whether or not we want to publish it and then we'll put in whatever work we think it needs if we think we have the time and energy to do that or if we're getting paid to do that on some in some cases um but that it was very much a um a traditional style publishing uh, label uh, whereas immortalize is a service that i offer um, I wanted to make use of it is my logo. Um, I wanted to make use of um, the um, self-publishing mechanism that exists, um, and also the um, sort of the traditional publishing idea, uh, and also take some things from vanity publishing as well, which I know is a, na- a naughty word if you are an author typically. But um, so I don't know for people who don't know then typically how it works is that a traditional publisher will take a manuscript and then they will pay everything. Uh, They take all the financial risks. They do all the work that's necessary. They publish the book and then they send royalties out to the author if they like the book. If they don't like the book, they do nothing at all and you don't get in with them. Um, Vanity publisher typically will take literally whatever book you send them and they will charge you whatever their package deal is for your book to exist, and then they'll require you to buy a bunch of copies, which you then have to house in your shed, whatever, and then sell. Um, And they're more than happy to do that for you because you're paying them to do it for you. Um, And they will leave it in your hands. Um, And self-publishing being the other possible option, you have to do all of it yourself and nobody will help you. Uh, so you've got to do all your own editing, typesetting, cover designs, all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, maybe there's a way to walk between those lines. Um, so I could 
uh, have a publishing label because there's a lot of people who, when you say, I'm a self-published author, they go, oh, yeah, okay, because you couldn't get your book into a big publisher because it's not. Mm. Therefore, you published it yourself, so the quality is probably not great. Um, so there's a little bit of a sort of a stigma attached to self-publishing, which is, I mean, in, in all truth, sometimes that is true, but not 100% true. Um mm. But um, and also you said you know I'm published with this publisher and then I, I had to buy two hundred copies or what two thousand copies or whatever. Um, okay, so your your book only got published because you paid for it. Um, mm. Nobody actually wants to read it, except maybe your family members who you've conned into buying the copy. You're now shilling it to everybody. Um, so I thought, well, if I could offer the services that a vanity publisher would offer but do my best to undercut them wherever possible and, and make it flexible so you can choose which ones you want and which ones you don't want. Um, and then I could use the self-publishing mechanism to do that, but it wouldn't be self-published because you've got a publisher who's done your editing for you or done your cover for you or whatever. So you are published with a label, um, but you're not self-published. You're not necessarily vanity publishing. So it can be treated a little bit like a regular publisher. So trying to walk in between that line. And at the time, I thought I was the only person doing it. I have since learned that there are probably a bunch of other people around who are doing something similar. Um, but I don't really know very much about what they do because I thought this up off my own back. Um, but in any case, that's what I do. Um, but also with Stone Table, we publish sci-fi and fantasy books uh, whereas with Immortalize, I publish literally anything that people bring me, um, sure. provided that it's not going to get me sued, uh, <laughs> or, you know, like offend the entire world. Um, yeah. So a lot of my books are also written by Christians, and that's just by virtue of the fact that it's Christians who I know who have got books, and I've said, you want me to do your book for you? And they've said, yes, please. Um, and I've, I've attracted a lot of people who write philosophy, so I've got a lot of philosophy books in my collection, Although that's partly because one of my writers is so prolific that I've published like 10 of his books. Uh, and so a lot of philosophy books because they're all from him. Mm. Uh, but I've, you know, yeah, I've got a, a pretty broad collection of random stuff in my collection because it is whatever people have. Um, mm. I try not to compete with Stone Table too much. There has been one instance where somebody has jumped ship from one to the other. Um, mm. But that was, kind of, actually, no, there's been two. Now that I think about it, um, there have been two specific ones where they have jumped. And in one case, it was because um, with Immortalize, the author retains ownership of their books. Um, so I will happily release the book back to the author at a moment's notice at any time. Um, so they can publish it with someone else if they need. If they want to, or if they just don't want it published anymore, or whatever they, whatever reason. I don't, I don't need a reason. All I need is for them to say, I would like it back, and they can have it back. Mm -hmm. um, although the ideal reason is because some big publisher has said, we want your book, can you give it to us? We want exclusive rights. We're going to sell a million copies. I mm. will by all means, do that. Go, go with them, and I give you all my blessing. Um, whereas with... Um, Stone Table, there's a little bit less. I mean, there's still ownership is still there, but it's a bit less direct mm. because we have to. Uh, Stone Table has been bought by Whitcomb in the US. So we have to go to them and say, this person doesn't really want their book on the collection anymore. Can you remove it? Mm. Then chase them up and make sure they've remembered to do it because they're 
they've got a lot of stuff going on and it's hard to keep their attention. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of uh, that. And also one of the people that came had a great idea for a seven-part series. And as a general, I'll, this is anybody out there who's a writer of fantasy, I know you've probably got a trilogy or a seven-part or a ten-part or whatever. That's fantastic. Don't pitch all of them to a publisher at <laughs> once. Um <laughs> Because any publisher, if they're worth anything, will say, give us one and we'll see how it goes. And then if you mm. want another one after that, we will green light that one on the basis of how well the first one has gone. Yeah. Um, so any any of the big traditional publishers will, will not take a series unless they are already sold. Like they know that they're going to be able to make a million on it. Uh, this guy brought in a, a series of seven and they look pretty good. And we thought, yeah, we'd love to do them, but Stone Table will not guarantee in advance that we will publish all seven books. Mm -hmm. uh, we just can't do it because we don't know how well book one is going to sell. Yeah. And if book one, if book one sells a hundred copies, book two is probably going to sell less than that. And book three will sell less than that. That's just how these books usually go. Um, you never get as many sales off of the subsequent books as you do off the first one. Um, mm. But Immortalize, I can guarantee that I will do all, all of the books because he's paying for them. Uh, he's paying me to do his typesetting. He's paying me to do his editing for him, I think, if he wanted me to do editing. Um, he's paying me for ebook conversions. Um, and all of those are optional. He chooses what he wants, and I do them, and he gets it. Uh, <clears throat> so on that basis, I I told him you're much better off to switch to Immortalize uh, because I can get and I, what I did was I said this is what Stone Table will, will offer you this is what Immortalize will offer you you just pick which one you want to go with and then you let go uh, because I don't want to be taking from Stone Table but I also don't want him to get a different deal than what he wants. Uh, In some ways, you're an un unpublished author's dream because you you do offer a sort of a traditional. This has been accepted by a publishing house, and then I'm going to foot the responsibility and make sure it's edited. But if if for some reason that doesn't happen, you can just kind of go, "Now meet meet me around the back, and we'll sort it out." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and Ben, it's, here's a topic that I thought you might find interesting because I know you're really good at technology. Oh, and I should say before I ask this question, Ben actually helped <laughs> me with my own book, which was a comic book, and uh, he helped me publish that. Yes. And uh, uh, I'd been wanting to publish that for a long time, and I can definitely say Ben was excellent at uh, getting me through that process. And uh, it's since gone from Create Space onto Amazon now, mm. so yeah. it's there sitting there, which I was, which is kind of cool because yes. uh, it's it's kind of moved uh, seamlessly from one to the other, which I was really glad about. So mm. yeah, um, yeah, it's it's uh, Ben really helped me with that, and. Uh, I've got a few more on the way. Attend the series, actually. No, not really. No. <laughs> um, it probably will be, but uh, we'll get there. It's okay. Um, my next my next series is a series of five. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, now, I had a question for you because, uh, yeah, as I said, I, I know that you're into technology and uh, you've certainly taught yourself a lot. And uh, even look at your business cards. You were using QR codes before they became fashionable. Like they were, <laughs> And yes. yours even has a logo on it. Which yep. is amazing because that it's actually you've got my old logo. I've got a new one now. Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. A bit higher, so we didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was going to talk to you about AI, and yes. uh, now there's been some huge developments, as you know, in AI, and 
you know, it's certainly starting to find itself into art and writing, architecture, other creative mm-hmm. endeavors. Is it something that you can see yourself using in your creative work? Or do you think that there are threats that AI has towards creative works? At the moment, I wouldn't I wouldn't say threats at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, I understand, uh, particularly for visual artists, people are finding a lot of problems there because um, the uh, some of the AIs that, that are doing really good artwork, um, it's hard to compete with an AI. Mm. Um, you know, the... If you've played with them for long enough, you'll know there are some serious flaws, but those flaws are just a matter of how long will it take them to figure out how to get around that. Um, yeah, yeah. One day they will figure out how to teach an AI to count fingers and then hands will all be okay. Um, one day they will teach an AI that a beard usually covers both sides of the face and the glasses mm. have two sides, um, and then it will get those things right. Um, but that's a matter of training, I think. Uh, so on the visual art side, it certainly is it's difficult, but um, there's been a lot of people talking about how it, it can't actually do exactly what an artist can do. Mm. Um, and so there is still a lot of space for artists to be really good at their job. Um, it is just difficult because it does take away a lot of the, the, the bottom end of the job. Um, as far as have I used it? Yes, I have actually already. Mm-hmm. Um, the in in my work with Immortalize, one thing that's really convenient is to be able to make a cover very quickly um, yeah. without charging the artist, the author, a great deal of money. Um, if you hire an, a, a cartoonist to make you a cover a cover for a book, that can cost you thousands of dollars to do yeah. a really good one. Most of my authors don't have thousands of dollars to pay for a book cover. Um, I usually quote them fifty dollars for a for a decent book cover, uh, but it's pretty basic. Um, but with AI, I can make a pretty good book cover very quickly. Um, but it's not. I I don't exclusively use them like I've I've used a little bit. Uh, the one I just did recently, I had. Um, uh catch tilly's book it's called the teacher is not a troll um it's about a couple of kids who are training to be knights and they're not sure about whether the teacher is a troll or not um, <laughs> and when i had to make the cover for that it's like i could spend a bunch of time making this cover but then i have to charge her for the artwork and i know that she's already paying a bunch of money for other things and she hasn't got that kind of money to be able to pay for a full cover well, what I could do is I could get an AI to make me a classroom setting and then I could put characters in front of it. And so it's painted my background, which has saved me a lot of hours and then mm. saved her a lot of money. Um, and then I've got original artwork that I put in front of that, mm. um, which, I mean, the, the image of the two kids standing back to back with a sword Um was something that I was going to draw for the inside of the book anyway. Mm. Uh, already had that image. All I had to do was add color to it and make it look nice, and then cut that on my Photoshop and stick it on front of a classroom. Um, and so, what could have taken me weeks to do, mm. I very quickly can smash that out in a you know a day or two, and charge her fifty dollars for a cover. Um, and so, it's a, an amazing time saver. And it's an amazing money saver. 
but yeah. if, if I had said, and in fact, I tried this, I actually said I wanted to see whether AI could do it. So I used a bunch of my AI credits that I've been accruing and said, draw me this. And I gave the description of the two characters and said, paint that for me. And what I got was horrible. Uh, mm. I, got, I got about 50 variations of horrible yeah. um, mm. and nothing actually usable. Um, mm. But when I said, give me a messy classroom, I got a dozen variations three of which were, were actually good. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> a dozen variations where three are good takes me 10 minutes um, and solves my problem. Yeah. So, yes, I have used it, um, and I will definitely be using it. Um, as far as on the writing front, though, AI can't do creative writing well. Um it, it, what it can do is it, it it copies things like turns of phrase and it copies i mean it, it can it can write some coherent things sometimes mm. but it does tend occasionally to forget things or lose the plot um like literally lose the plot like it doesn't know what actually happened 10 minutes before uh, mm. so whatever it, you could get it to write you a novel but then you'd have to go through the whole novel and fix it um, and I'm not sure that fixing the AI-generated novel would be any quicker than writing it yourself. It might be. It might be like half the time that you would have spent writing it, but it wouldn't have the created through lines. It wouldn't have your basic concept necessarily. Um, I actually did this recently because I, I was saying before, I've got a project on the go. I know you're going to ask me about it later, so I can talk about it a bit now because it <laughs> kind of ties in. Um, but uh, my current project that I've, I've had this project for a couple of years, I had this idea about a bunch of characters that I created for role-playing games. Um, they were characters that got a session and then that game folded for whatever reason, or they were characters who I created for a session and that session never happened. Uh, and so I had these five characters that I was really taken with and none of them really felt like they'd been explored very well. I really want to give them a book. Uh, so I, I imagined putting them into a role-playing game setting um, and just playing them as a character and see how that goes. And then I thought it would be really interesting to see each of them do the same mission, um, but they would do it differently because they're different characters with different abilities and different processes. And then I thought, what if they did them all at the same time, but in separate books? Um, so that each character would encounter the effects of the other characters having been there. Um, and so I, I picked at this idea for a while, and every time I talk about it to somebody, they go, oh, that's really fascinating. I've never seen that done before. How will you do it? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, and, and I think the reason it hasn't been done before is it might not be possible. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily deter me from the idea. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because... yeah. I, I'm thinking about it right now, just thinking of the possibilities of how you, yeah, would, how you would do that in a in an interesting way, like because it's a fascinating concept, mm. and I, I've never seen it done before. But I'm wondering how you would do that. Yes, with their, each of their different qualities and capabilities and strengths. So I have I have one character task. who's he's he's kind of. Imagine that uh, a bunch of dwarves Frankenstein together this creature out of dragon bits and armor and kind of made a golem-type creature. Um, 
for the ancient Jewish golem, not the Lord of the Rings golem. Um, <laughs> but um, so they created this thing, and his job is to do whatever their God tells him. Um, and they have given him a mission and sent him on this mission to go and help somebody. He doesn't know who they are. He's listening to the voice of his God telling him to go and do this and then go and do this and then go and do this. And he will just keep doing those things until he finds that person and helps them, whatever he's here to do. He has a mission. So he's very direct and he's very big. Um, and so his approach to tower owned by evil wizard is march up to the front door, punch the front door down and go in and find what he's looking for. Um, so he does that and then all the alarms go off and all of the guards are running around freaking out because they're under attack. But the other character who is kind of like a frog and kind of like a ninja who is three stories up climbing in through a window, suddenly all the guards are running around like they're under attack and they don't know why. But this made their job much harder now. Um, so I'm kind of imagining how these different stories will interact with each other with the idea that if you read this story, there'll be a self-contained story. But then when you read the next one, you'll see events that will be familiar from the previous story. And mm. then the next one, there'll be events that will be familiar from both of the previous stories. And you get that M. Night Shyamalan moment when someone goes, oh, I know where this is. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but then I've been sitting on this for a while because I couldn't figure out how to go forward on it um, because it is complex. And so I thought, what if I went to an AI and said, write me each of these five stories? If I gave it the details of the story and said, write me this story, now write me this story, now write me this story, um, so that I could use that as a way to roadmap how these would interact. Um, and it was really fascinating to see some of the ideas that it came out with, which I will possibly use. But yeah. what I also found was that it ended up very quickly that the characters were connecting too much with each other. Um, yeah. So they were actually having to meet in the course of the story, which I was trying to avoid. Um, and they were having conversations with each other and making plans. And I'm not sure whether I want that. Um, yeah. But it was interesting to see how that shape came about. Um, and it gave it gave me a chance to think through in those terms. Um, so because because the AI at least what it can do is it does know how to plot a story. It's pretty good at an outline. It yeah. Say, Give me an outline for a novel about this character who has this flaw, and it will give you an outline, and it will actually extrapolate how that flaw relates to the plot, um, and what things that this character needs to overcome in order to finish their story. Like it will give yeah. you a story arc. It knows how to do that because that mm -hmm. stuff has been really well established. But one of the problems with really good writing, to get really good writing, is to not use obvious turns of phrase, which AI will use. Yeah. Uh, you want to surprise people, say something different than what they were expecting, do something different than what they were expecting. Um, you want your character's solution to the problem to be something that nobody saw coming. The AI doesn't necessarily think of it, um, and a good writer will explore those possibilities and hopefully come up with a really good solution. Um, but also, the AI 
might spot a really unusual creative solution that you didn't think of. So it doesn't hurt to feed the idea into the AI and say, what do you think the answer should be? Um, yeah. I've had some very interesting conversations with an AI. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, talk, I'll, I'll give it an idea and say, what do you think about this? And it will tell me, and I think, that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I made one apologize to me. That was good fun. Because <laughs> uh, I, I said, you know, how many, uh, what was it? Uh, if a house is completely full of like rubbish and stuff all over the floors, how many people does it take to put in a, a light bulb? And it goes, mm. well, one should be able to do it or whatever. And I said, yeah, but the ground is so unsteady. It could fall over. And then it said, I'm really sorry about that. You're right. It's a safety hazard. I'm really sorry. Don't mention this. <laughs> and suddenly I was like, I've got this thing to apologize. The other funny one that I did actually is I said, why does my cavoodle look like a sheep? And I really struggled with that. It, for a good 30 seconds, it sat there like with a yep. little dot, dot, dot going until finally it said, well, because it looks woolly, you know, like, but that's all it could really think of. It was just, yep. it was genuinely confused by that question but yeah. but yeah I, I have stable diffusion on my computer and i've just installed a uh, an image thing so that i can actually put my characters from my comic into stable diffusion and then i'll be able to put them in different poses put yes. them in different styles yeah. throw different ideas in there i'm going to use it as a kind of an envisioning tool you know to, yeah what, what John, could, do you, yeah do you want to quickly unpack for the users who might not know what stable diffusion is <laughs> very hard for me to explain i hate to say it <laughs> but sadly it's true um it's an ai uh oh gosh that's a very good question i'm 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 really new to it but for me it's it's an image manipulation you can it's text to text to image really so you can put in pretty much any command and it will bring up an image mm -hmm. uh and uh so there's some truly some bizarre creations that people i'm sure uh i can guarantee are not worth googling so don't don't go and explore mm. the horrendous you, but you can do you can pretty much anything well yeah. i mean the the yeah the the interesting um you could put in anything and then it will you can even decide to have it like a rolling creation tool so mm. you can set a limit of unlimited so it'll just keep spitting out things and then you can say i'd like a little uh like, like if let's say you want to say i, I want to see a cross between uh, a gorilla and a plant, and you can actually have parameters of oh, I, I want more plant, I want, yeah. I want less less gorilla, more plant, planty. And then, yeah, that's right. And then the ethicists come in and arrest you, basically. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's right. It, it, it's uh, it, you know, you can decide the parameters of how much you want. And uh, honestly, I mean, um, I think it's one of those things where it's good to keep an eye on where it's going because mm. it's quite incredible what it can do. There have been copyright issues and things like that, but they're mm, kind of yeah. working their way through those things as well. Like there's uh, there's been issues, I mean, because all the assets are coming from the internet or from data yes. sets, you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff. Uh, so there's there's test cases and everything coming out. It's it's a complicated mm. field, but I think there's, there's definitely going to be scope for creating things yourself and mm. using AI as a tool. That's how I use it. So I, I use it for, for idea formulation more than yeah. anything. Well, yeah. the, the thing with the way the AI is work, the way that it works is that they feed it millions and millions of examples of something. Yeah. And then that's how it learns what the thing looks like. 
So if you yeah. you wanted to have millions of examples of something, the best way to do that is get them from the internet. So that's what yeah. they did. They went to the internet and they said, let's find a million examples of a face. That's um, right. Here's boys' faces. Here's girls' faces. Here is elf faces. Here is, you know, superhero faces. Here is... And they just kept on adding more of these things. Um but so you can ask it, show me a face, and that it can paint amazing faces. Um, problem is that if you say, show me hands, there are a million kinds of hands, and they're all in different shapes and positions, and it's really hard for it to figure out what the geography of a hand is. Yeah. Uh, but if you, if you feed it um, a lot of examples of a specific thing, <clears throat> it can find those things. And it can recreate them. And the reason why it can do a story plot and outline is because it has read millions of story outlines. Uh, yeah. And it has a rough understanding of how those things work. Yeah. 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 I've I've found, I mean, it's interesting. I work as a content writer, you know, in, in my day job. Um, and one of the things I've, AI is big business for us. And one of the things we've found is it's very good at doing structure. Like it's fantastic at programming. You yeah. can ask it to do, you know, functions that do this in Excel and things like that, and it does it really, really easily. And it can give you structures and ideas and things, but when it comes to the polished execution, it's not so good. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, it's still the same The same problem that they have, though, is that it doesn't understand the structure, really, uh, oh. and it flourishes. So it can, uh, if you, can, you can say, draw me a picture of a... Um, an orc warlord with a, a great axe, it'll give you that, yeah. Um, but the more detail you want in that picture, the the harder it's going to be to get exactly what you want. And a yeah. really good artist will give you the background details that match what you want, they will have That's the composition true. of the picture will be exactly right. Um, yeah. they can anticipate those things. Like the one of the great things about I don't know if you've ever noticed in some of the uh, some of the best kids books where the illustrators have actually got a secondary story happening only in the images, uh, yeah, in the background of something. Uh, I was looking at just the other day actually one of my kids has a book from the Bluey cartoon series, and it's um, it was about uh, Baby Race I think was the the episode it was from, but if you look in the background. The dad bandit is just a wreck because he hasn't slept because he's got a new baby in the house, and you can just there's like this little thread going through of him in increasingly increasing levels of like raggedness because he's trying to trying to deal with this, and it's just yeah. a thing where the the person who's done the art for this has gone, yes, this this scene is about this baby who's learning to crawl and or not crawl or you know scooting backwards or whatever. But there's more going on in this person's family than just this. In the background, I'm going to have this as well, you know. Um, yeah. Oh, and that's the same for like famous paintings, like hmm. the uh, the Australian, uh, you know, famous Australian like uh, paintings that you see in the art gallery. Sometimes you know you have the beach scene where everyone's dressed up in a suit and tie and top yeah. hat, you know, like in the 1920s or, or earlier, like 1700 yeah. or yeah. whatever. And there's a guy asleep in the background in full top hat and suit. Yes. And 
because it's such a warm day and he's full yeah. of sleep, he doesn't look formal at all anymore. And you, you're not going to get AI creating something so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. poignant and so truthful about the elements and how that has created this situation. I think, I think certainly when you see it started creeping into writing and music and it is getting better at some things, but yeah. as you say, it's struggling with that real humanness. And I think it's, you know, musicians, you know, like Nick Cave and everything have picked up on the fact that, you know, he has a lot of disdain for that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and some of the music it's created, the words are just rubbish, but yes. it can yeah. create a rhythm and whatever. And it, it's probably in a style that some people like some of it, but it's still, yeah. it can't capture a lot of the stuff that's, that's no, going not on. Not good at nuance. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, it, it might create a piece of music that people like, but the the meaning of the lyrics and yeah. the way they interact with that rhythm and that melody are, are not going to work the same. Uh, so yeah. it's a real threat to people who are not very good at this area, but it's not a threat to people who are actually really good. Um, so for, yeah. for, for the general public don't know what is really, really good in this particular field, in any field, really. It's the thing of most of us don't understand, um, you know, pick any field you like. We don't understand it as well as the people who are the experts. Um, mm. So, I mean, as, as a uh, fairly mediocre bass level musician, I understand a little bit about music, but I don't, I don't get the nuances of a lot of stuff. Uh, so I watch some YouTube videos of people who actually analyze music and I'm fascinated by some of the stuff they can see happening mm. with it. A channel called yeah. 12 tone which i really enjoy um where he just picks apart a classic pop song and says so this this is what they're doing here and here are the layers of things that they're, they're you know what they've done with this sound and this rhythm and whatever and i was like i don't understand any of that i would never have picked yeah. it out but i like it i yeah. know that i like it and i didn't know why i liked it but now i do yeah, um, yeah. and it's the same with the same with creative writing it's the same with visual art there are things that you look at and you go, you know what, I like that. Uh, I just made it quiet. And, and a rapper yeah. would destroy AI in a rap battle any day. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure they would. A true rapper would just rip it to shreds, yeah. And I think actually the entertainment value then would actually be watching it try. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is entertaining. I've, I've seen it. They were looking sideways and going, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. That's right. What you've, you've talked a bit about um, stuff that you're working on narrative-wise, but just in general, what what are the projects you're working on at the moment? Okay, uh, so I've got yeah my my five part little uh, project, which I have no clue how to do, is my main thing, but it's been sitting on the shelf for a while. Um, um, so that that is my project that I'm working on for me, which I really haven't been working on much for myself. I, it, it's niggling the back of my brain. But yeah. um, they haven't sat down and actually done work on it for a while. Um, but I am actually most of my time at the moment has been going into a couple of other books that are coming out soon. Uh, so mm. Pete uh, Pete Cord has got a new one coming out very soon, um, which is fascinating. Uh, mm. uh, have you have you had a look at it already? Has he? Oh, he's, he's, that's been a guest on our show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah is that the one? Is that the one um, uh, about uh, the world stop spinning? Yes. 
Yes. Yes. Use me I'm possibly giving it yes. away, given it's like in the first page of the book. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so, I yeah, the Use Men's Bicycle Club is that one. Uh, that's yes, I'm lucky awesome. enough to to get a get a look at that one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm actually – I it's in final edits now. Uh, so that one will be out very soon. Um, I've got a couple of other books which are still in kind of the early stages um, from uh, a few folks. So I really can't talk about them very much yet. Um, but also um, for Immortalize, I've got um, a fellow, who, the guy who brought in his 12-book series, or sorry, seven-book series. Um, his, his first one is called The Last Shadar, um, and it is, it's, a, it's a big uh, fantasy story. Um, and um, yeah, he's he's already got seven episodes uh, to come. So um, I'm only on the first one, and I'm just working mm. that now. But that should be out fairly soon too. Um, mm. So yeah, picking away at those, and hopefully my own projects. Um, doing a little bit of painting. Uh, got my little Masters of the Universe set over here. Uh, yes. I'm back to Kickstarter and bought little minis, little, little tiny minis that I can paint. Nice. Just, just finished painting them two days ago. Um, and so now I get to play. Um, but yeah, so most of, most of my time has gone into uh, working on other people's books and I will kind of want to get some of that time back so I can work on my own stuff and actually get my own book out because mm. my my little five book thing is only going to happen if I keep on pushing it and at the moment I haven't yeah. mm. a little mad scientist narrative project yes <laughs> yes well that thing about it being potentially impossible that was a motivating factor for one of my other projects I did before where someone said you can't do it and I said I want to see if I can yeah oh um, really Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Someone, I, I can relate actually, to that kind of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> it was in, in our um, poetry class back at Tabor so years ago. Someone wrote, actually our textbook said, you can't write a daisy chain poem which is rhymed and metered and makes any kind of sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, if you, don't know if you know what a daisy chain is. A daisy chain poem, the first letter of the word so the last letter of each word has to be the same as the first letter of the next word. Uh, so if your first word start, ends with an A, your second word must start with an A. And if that word ends with a G, then your next word must start with a G. Um, mm. Daisy chain poem works. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a matter of you have to figure out you've got your limit is the next word has got to start with that letter. Uh, whatever word you're going to use has got to start with that letter. And so you've got this massive problem with how do you pick your words they said, mm. actually making that have any kind of rhythm mm. or any rhyme scheme or meter or make any kind of sense. They said, you just can't do it. And I said, I am going to do it. Yeah. So I did, and I wrote it in my in my little anthology. Um, so the anthology is called The Tale of Alathimble Spade, and the poem is called uh, The Eight, the name itself also being a data chain. Uh, mm. It's about eight trolls who get mm. um, destroyed by uh, Thor. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was a challenge for me, and I decided I was going to take it on. I actually used a little bit of AI in that one. That was a long time ago, though. <laughs> uh, there was, know, there was something about Sorry. Something I, like, sorry. I, I, found a, I found a program where you can type in, uh, I need a word that starts with this letter, ends with this letter, and has this many syllables. Go. <laughs> and it will give you a list. So I, nice. I made a lot of use out of that. 
I, I'm just saying there is something seems to be a distinctive of of creative types that yes. you know um, people will say, oh, this can't possibly be done, and a lot of people will just go, oh, fair enough, I'll, I'll stop trying. And there's just one person in the room who goes, really? That's right. <laughs> Let me be the first. <laughs> I shall have my name in the history books as the first person to achieve this. Yeah. So what you're saying is no one's ever done it before. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess at this point it has it is getting late. So we had <laughs> probably get to let's get to the point where we will say thank you very much, Ben, for yeah, well, having point. It has been a pleasure to sort of talk about everything from from books to um, where AI is going to take us. Yes, <laughs> everything in between. Um, and uh, as this as this is one part one of a seven part series, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to keep going. Of course, so we'll, we'll see you back next week. <laughs> well, I knew this was going to happen though, because as soon as I sit down and talk to you guys, we're going to have this kind of conversation. It's just the way it has to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Had> a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, we will say thank you very much. Um, it's probably worth us finishing off just with a word of prayer, just to say, yes. you know, thank you and and try and bless you on some of the projects you're working on. Um, so how about I quickly pray for us? Yeah, sounds awesome. good. Um, Lord, thank you so much for the the bloke that you've made, Ben, and all the gifts that you've given him. Thank you for Stone Table and Immortalize and the way that they have blessed so many people. Um, and we just pray that you would be continuing to have your hand on them. You would be um, blessing all the work that Ben is doing um, and all the, the authors and artists connected with those organisations. And we just pray that you would be continuing to just work yourself into stories, um, both in a blatant way and in a subtle way, and just inspire um, artists and writers um, to just show you in whatever way uh, they they feel is right. And we just pray that you'd be, yeah, blessing Ben um, in the stuff that he does and that you'd be giving him clarity um, and giving him time um, and helping things come together for him, Lord. Uh, we pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Cool. Thanks, awesome. guys. And just quickly, I should say, you know, if people want to go check out um, Stone Table Books, um, I can definitely endorse that. Um, <laughs> uh, and Immortalize, um, we'll, we'll put some details. I'm, I'm assuming, John, we can put some details on the socials. Yeah. Uh, I'll get and, AI onto it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> get the AI butler. Um, but yeah, <laughs> do check out some of those things. Um, we'll put some links up. Um, thanks for joining us everyone and thank you so much Ben for spending some time with us no problem